that there's going. All right. Good morning to you, uh, brothers and sisters, on this uh, rainy second Sunday of Easter. Um, if I look a bit different, it's because uh, I did indeed uh, get a haircut from an unlicensed barber, uh, my dear wife. <laughs> uh, we joke that it's the uh, WWE haircut, uh, but so it is. My computer seems to be glitching all over the place, but we'll just have to proceed as best we can. Must be the storm, maybe. Okay. Well, the verse I'd like to preach on is uh, John chapter 20, verse 20. He showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was the nail marks and the scar on his side that proved to the disciples that the person that they were seeing was in fact the risen Jesus, that it was not an angel, it wasn't an apparition, um, it was no phantom of their imagination, it was the same man, the same God-man that they had seen killed three days earlier who had now been raised from the dead. The nail marks was the vindicating proof. Um, <clears throat> the nail marks show forth that the glory that Jesus has is the glory that's on the other side of suffering, the glory that is uh, redeemed from suffering. It's not a glory disconnected from the trials of this life, not just a glory emanating from heaven, as glorious as that would be, but it's actually the glorification of a wounded and scarred body. The nail marks prove that it really was a body, that it wasn't uh, uh, just some sort of spiritual resurrection, that it really was his uh, human body that was raised. The nail marks reveal that Jesus remains for eternity as the one who suffered. That he continues, and this is the great message, of course, of Hebrews, that he continues uh, as our high priest, as one who emp can empathize with us. Right? That he, as one who continues in his identity as the one who suffered, that he is so close to us who suffer both by um, our participation in him and by his identification with us. The nail marks prove all these things. And I think nail marks characterize all true Christianity. Um, there's a story I love uh, from church history with St. Martin of Tours uh, 1,600 years ago who was um, saying his prayers and he got this vision of, I'm sorry, that, by the way, that my internet I see is jumping all over the place. Sorry about that. Um, but St. Martin got this vision uh, and he saw, it looked it was like this sort of glorious, his apparition, and it looked like Jesus in his glory, the sort of radiant glory. Um, but St. Martin, something didn't seem quite right. And, uh, but then this vision he had of Jesus and Jesus was saying, oh, I have wonderful things to show you and to give you, Martin. Martin's like, he says to the vision, he says, show me the nail prints in your hands. And at that point, the uh, mask gets ripped off and it was actually the enemy, the devil, uh, masquerading as an angel of light, trying to trick Martin. And when Martin asked for the prints of the nails um, and there were none to be found, it was clear that it was the pride of Satan rather than the humility of Christ. And Martin wasn't gonna be tricked. So I love that insistence on show me the print of the nails. Uh, all Christian teaching, all testimony about the Lord um, needs to have the print of the nails as part of it. Um, the, the print of the nails distinguishes real Christianity from uh, 
uh, hallmarkified Christianity. A hallmark mutation of the Christian faith presents uh, a false promise that Christians won't suffer, which is connected um, to really a false picture of the Messiah. I love uh, that St. Peter, of course, was in that upper room, um, records in his first letter that we read as the epistle this morning, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this, the faith uh, of, in Christ Jesus, you now rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, for his original audience, this um, almost certainly meant the persecution that the early church was suffering under the emperor Nero. But as the eternal word of God, this is true in all kinds of settings, including our own, that whatever trials uh, you uh, maybe suffering right now, um, maybe unique to your own situation, maybe in common with the rest of the country that continues to bear with the difficulties of being shut in with the pandemic and all the things that have been canceled as a result of that. All manner of thing, whatever is permitted, uh, it actually is being used for the refinement of our faith. That's Peter's message. He says that just as the Lord suffered and the servant is not greater than his master, um, we uh, are permitted to suffer but that if we cling tight to Jesus Christ, and that's that um, vision of faith, clinging to Christ, says in verse 7, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, um, has sort of a double meaning, Re ultimately when he's revealed on the last day uh, at the end of time, but also revealed to us when we die and go to see him. Um, our perseverance in the faith results in praise and glory for him and honor for him, but also honor for us. He invites us into his own honor, uh, as our faith is tried by these difficulties. We, of course, cannot see Jesus right now, uh, but we do cling to him. We're not fair-weather fans. We're loyal sons and daughters. We're supposed to be loyal sons and daughters. Or as 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 so tenderly puts it, though you have not seen him, of course, Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. I love that verse. We, the church after the ascension, are the ones that the Lord Jesus himself called blessed on the Sunday after Easter when he said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus has in view there all of us who have not seen and yet have believed. We have believed, I know all you who are watching have believed, but one of the things that this verse a question raises for me is, do we love him? I, I believe in him, of course, but do I love him? Love him whom I have not seen. Um, a great a teacher that I was blessed to have uh, in seminary used to say that, of course, love is more than a feeling. That's a truth that all Christians have learned and know, but that doesn't mean it's less than a feeling, that yes, uh, the chief indicator that Jesus gives to us as to do we love him or not is do we obey his commandments, that we show forth our love for the Lord through our actions chiefly. And it's our obedience of Jesus um, that demonstrates to him and to the world that we do in fact love him. But um, for instance, take a marriage. If a marriage was only, if the love of a marriage was only characterized by uh, sort of obedient, dutiful acts of service, it wouldn't be the fullness uh, of marriage. 
No, uh, of course, feelings are a part of that. And I think it should be so for Jesus. And that's why I find actually conviction in this verse um, that I don't have the affection and the love for Jesus that I wish that I had. That when Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him, my heart says, ah, I've loved him a little bit and I want to love him more. Um, I was comforted when I learned, I think it was St. Augustine who said that actually the desire to love God more reveals the presence of love, at least in part. And so be comforted by that. And also, also ultimately, love for God can't be engineered by ourselves. Um, it's actually a gift of God himself. And that's sort of one of the strange mysteries of how we participate in the life of God. But love is actually one of the fruits of the Spirit, actually the chief fruit, right? Love, joy, peace, not just for other people, but for God himself. We actually need God to infuse God's own love in our hearts for him. So um, in the face of this sort of tender challenge of 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you, you love him, um, I think I'd like to close with a prayer for love. And there's actually one in our prayer book. Um, it's now, a, it's a collect written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I'm not quite sure how old it is, but it's been in the prayer book a long time. We now pray on the sixth Sunday of Easter, um, which is Rogation Sunday. And with this, I want to close. It's on page 613 of your prayer book if you want to look it up after. O oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you. Pour into our hearts such love towards you. Pour into our hearts such love towards you, that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I invite you now um, to pray the Great Litany, continuing to intercede for the church and for the world, and after that to make an act of spiritual communion. And I can't wait till we can have a communion in person again. Um, it seems like that's coming into view maybe sometime this summer. Who knows? Whenever the authorities um, permit corporate gathering again. Okay, God bless you, my friends.